morning, saints of HBC. You can turn to Romans chapter 6. The theme of our union with Christ, even captured in that last song, that all of our hope for all of our needs, he is. And you sing that, and it's, it's personal when you know him personally, because it's not just that you say that about a God who is far off and distant. He is the Son of God who came to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, who when he had to reveal himself and who he is, it really is the response of heaven to that song. We say he is, and he says, I am. And that's our hope, that in every way we look to him. And we may say, actually, is he? Is he hope? Is he help when I'm hurting? When I'm weary? When... And he is. And he tells us from his word, I am. And for the believer, he goes even a step further. He then turns to us and, and says, you are. And those are the greatest words we can hear. He is, and he tells us, I am. And then he says, and you are my co-heir with Christ. You are a son and a daughter of God. All of that built on the precious truth in Romans 6 of our union with Christ. That when we sing, he is, he's not distant. In Christ, I am in him. And his spirit is in me. And we are united in an unbreakable bond that was forged at the cross. And in his resurrection... So that I can stand here today and know that every spiritual blessing in Christ is mine. Everything I need, which is different than saying Christ gives us everything we want. Because there's many things we want that he will not give. And our growth in following him and understanding him is us realizing those wants weren't his wants. But what we needed, he had. And so we turn to God's word this morning and learn more of all that he is for us in our union with him. So follow along with me as I read Romans 6, 1, which, or sorry, Romans 6, 8 to 14. We started in 6, 1 last week, and it was Paul answering the question that comes as an accusation, if you will. If grace really reigns, Romans 5, 21, if, if grace really reigns and it's that good and God is more glorified by giving more grace, then should we just sin more? Because the more we sin, the more he shows us grace, the more we can thank him for his grace, he's more glorified. And we saw that Paul shuts that down. He says, not a chance. Because you are united to Christ. And Christ is not united to sin. He has put sin to death once and for all. And we'll see that revisited again. So if in reading today in 8 to 14, you think, Adam, you're, it sounds like you, you're repeating yourself, Paul's repeating himself. Well, that is part of learning, is the repetition behind it and it really drilling in. And what really Paul did last week is he gave us a first pass over this idea that we are united to Christ. And so what is his is ours in 1 to 7 and now in 8 to 14. He kind of takes a second run at it, but adds a layer to it by way of now there are some commands for us to follow. Whereas last week, these were all just truths for us to rejoice in. He can now pivot and say, in light of all these truths, here's how you grow. Based on what you know, believer, here is how you can grow. So uh, follow with me, reading Romans 6, verses 8 through 14. 
Paul writes, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. This is the living and active word of God. May he use it this morning to pierce us to the innermost part. It was uh, this time of year, mid to late August, 18 years ago, uh, the beginning of a reformation began in my own spiritual journey. I'd like to say I was an eager participant, but in reality, this personal reformation in my life happened more by me stumbling upon it than seeking it out. It was in the uh, August of 2004, that uh, a year out of college, I was feeling like the area that I grew up in, I was back in after college, Pittsburgh, was too small of a fishbowl for this big fish. And I needed a bigger bowl. And so I moved to Los Angeles to make it big as an actor. You know, with, of course, the promise to God that when I accept said Oscar award, he will be first in line to get thanked. And, of course, that will set off a chain reaction for evangelicalism, that by my speech, thanking God, that everyone will get saved. I mean, that's kind of, in my mind at 24, how it worked out. And I know you've probably never had any similar thought, you know, Lord, if I win the lottery, this mega millions... Think of all the things I could do for you. 10%, I'll give you 20. <laughs> you know. Um, as you can tell, my being here, that plan didn't come to fruition. But really what it was beyond that, that I didn't know at the time, was God's sovereign hand guiding me to Los Angeles to, to attend a church and sit under verse-by-verse teaching in the Word of God. That really opened my eyes to who I was in Christ. It wasn't like I didn't know Christ or know the gospel. I was a Christian. But the riches, the fullness, Ephesians 1, of all that we are in Christ, I didn't know because I hadn't been taught. And as I mentioned last week, ignorance is never bliss in the Christian life. In the sense that the more effective you want to be is built on that which you know to be true about you and about God. True wisdom, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And to be ignorant of the promises you have, believer, is to be less effective than you could be. And that's why I call it my own personal reformation, because it was sitting in that church, having the word of God open to me week after week, and studying it for myself. It wasn't like I suddenly had this new mission, you know, the clouds opened, and I saw the future of what I was going to be. That wasn't anything at all. I wasn't really looking for that. Really, what it was was opening the word of God and God showing me more of himself, And by showing me more of himself in an Isaiah 6-like fashion, whoa, to me, the sinner, I knew more about myself. And what holds that all together, all these wonderful truths that we have 
about the gospel. Justification by faith, our sanctification, our growing in Christ, our one day glorification to be with him. All of those are wonderful pieces of our theology, if you will, uh, uh, bricks that we want to build a solid house to live in as Christians. But they're just the bricks. There's something that if you just stacked a bunch of bricks over, you just knock them down. Because what's not holding them together? There's a, a mortar that needs to be firmed up that you put theology together with. And really what that mortar is for us that holds wonderful, big theological words together that are right in front of you, actually, in case you're like, why are you always using those? Because Paul uses them. Justification, sanctification, glorification. But what holds us together, the mortar, is union with Christ. Uh, why justification is so wonderful <laughs> and why it actually applies to you is because you've been united to Christ. And so much more than your sanctification. It's not like, oh, you start with him and then move on from him. He is the one that beholding him, we become more like him. And your glorification, your hope. What is our only hope in life and death? The Heidelberg Catechism asks. That we belong to God, body and soul. And to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our glorification is built on our union with Christ. That we will be with him, with him, one day. Because he's with us right now. And in your justification, when you came to Christ, when you were declared righteous. You see, why union with Christ is such a precious truth? Because it's the mortar between the bricks of all the things you say you believe. That you have been united to Christ. And why the mortar and the bricks is okay analogy. Because when that stuff hardens, you just don't walk up and pull those things apart, do you? They're stuck. And why our theology stands and why we can then stand on what we believe is because we have been, as Romans 6 teaches us in verse 5, united with him. And that changes everything about who we are and then what we do. And we come to see today, and we'll see it even into next week, that now on the theme of construction, we are not just some remodeled sinner. We are a completely renewed saint. Remodeling, painting a wall, changing out the fixtures. It's not what happened to you when you came to Christ. You were a totally new construction, a new creation, Curtis read today. New mind, new creature, new will, new heart. That's total reconstruction. That's not a simple remodeling job. A, I'm just going to flip this house, make some money off it. No, I've got to tear it down to the studs, down to the foundation and see what's there. And that's this renewed person that we are in Christ. Colossians 3.10. Put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That's why we, we come to the word and ask for God to renew our minds. Because it's in that renewed knowledge, that true knowledge, according to his image, our creator, we put on the new self. And it goes in that order. So let's look to the text today and see how do we become these Christians who have victory in Jesus? How can we not sin? Which is what we'll get to in 12 to 14. How can we truly become more like Christ? 
Well, we know it's because of our union with Christ, but, but what do we do? What does Paul prescribe for us? What are the steps, if you could say it that way? And I think he lays them out, though he's not blaring it on a microphone saying, here's the steps to victory in Jesus. He does lay them out in three simple phrases. First, knowing Christ, verses 8 to 10. There is the key in verse 9, knowing that Christ, he's, he's telling you, believer, there's something you need to know. Before you know anything more about you, you need to know this about Christ. And this again, he's taking you back before he's taking you forward. He's repeating himself because he really wants to lay this foundation down again and again and again. Like Jesus preaching in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount at the end. You've got to build your house on a solid rock. And I'm going to provide the footer and the foundation for it. And it's justification. It's what happened at the cross. It's God declaring you the sinner righteous, not because of your work, but because of the work of Christ on your behalf. All of it. The whole of it. The perfect life and his obedience. The substitutionary death. Him in your place on the cross. And then him being raised for your justification, Romans 4.25. He's relaying that down in verse 9 saying, you've got to know this. Verse 8, he starts, now if we have died, he's already told us we have, so that's the repetition. We believe we'll live with him, and then he takes you back in verse 9 to his death. He wants to emphasize this. The penalty of sin has been removed from you, sinner. This is going to be the foundation for you to grow. Not to go back to your old ways. Not because you have some willpower in yourself to do it. It's because you look back to what Christ did for you. And then he, he maybe felt, Paul, that he didn't um, elaborate on just how, how ultimate Christ's demolition of sin was. That he completely decimated sin. And by decimating sin removes the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Death, where's your sting? Well, the sting's been removed when sin's been defeated. So verse 9, he wants to show you from every angle just how victorious was Christ over sin, which made him victorious over death. First thing he says is, having been raised from the dead. We know this. We need to know it even more. Having been raised from the dead, well, that proves that he what? Defeated the penalty that comes with sin, which is death. He rose from it. He didn't stay dead. That's his victory. Raised for our justification. Power over the penalty of sin has now been destroyed. But it wasn't just that. How much more did he do? Having been raised from the dead, Christ is never to die again. It's not just a power over sin's penalty, but also over the, the permanence of sin. That sin was going to continually demand that we had to do more to prove ourselves righteous. And so in the Old Testament system, again and again, offerings needed to be made for sin so that the follower of God could feel that they are good for today, good for the week, good for the month. But you read Roman or read Hebrews, particularly chapter 10. And the writer wants you to know that that old system is gone. That way of being righteous before God is over with. There is no need for a penalty to be paid again and again and again. So you listen to Hebrews 10, 
11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. And here's what's busted about it. Which can never take away sins. There would be a constant requirement that the law would demand that you couldn't live up to. So you'd have to come back to the priest again and again. So every religious system that has works built into it demands you have to go back and re-up. But the good news of the gospel, verse 12 of Hebrews 10. But Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. When I mentioned this this morning in first service, I had a brother come to me in between and said, you know, I come out of a Catholic background. And that's what the mass was for me. It was verse 11, the sacrifice week after week. I needed to take the Lord's table for grace to be infused to me because it was never enough. And he said, now here I see in the gospel, this is the good news. That because he, back in Romans 6, never to die again, shows that that sacrifice was once and for all. And then he says, a third aspect of this death, this victory that Christ had over death and sin. Death no longer is master over him. So by being raised from the dead, he removed sin's penalty. Never to die again, he removed the permanence of what sin required. And then last but not least, death no longer is master over him. Paul wants you to know this is the final blow. The greater power has won. It has no power over him. Verse 10 summarizes, because the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Now the life that he lived, he lives to God. As in, he, Christ has always lived to God the Father. There's never been any separation between the Son and the Father in the sense that he was not trying to glorify the Father. On the cross even, in the time of darkness, he was still what? There to glorify the Father, not to do his will, but the Father's will. So even then he was living to God, but he was also doing something to sin at that moment. There was a penalty he had to pay to sin. There was a permanence of what the law required that he had to fulfill. And yes, there was a power of sin over sinners that needed to be broken. So you could say in a way, he had to live at that moment towards sin. He had to do something about sin. And now it's saying present reality versus sin. No, the life that he lives now, because it's once and for all over, Purely lives to God. There's nothing left for Christ to do towards sin. Which is why any works-based religion, any, any sacrament you take that says, you've got to do this to kind of supplement the thing, basically undoes what Christ did on the cross when he said it is finished. That's why all other religious systems are broken. There's always still something left for the sinner to do just to make sure, you know, I just want to be really sure that God is pleased with me. No. That's not the good news of the gospel. Grace doesn't reign then. The law is still reigning. And Paul is saying, if you are going to have victory in Jesus, believers, you've got to know that from every angle, the sting of death, what sin required in the law has been removed. Death no longer is the penalty, permanent or powerful. The only thing death has or sin has now is its presence in our lives because we're in the flesh. And we'll get to that later. But for now, he's saying every possible way that we need to know that we've died with Christ, all he did to defeat death is now for us. We have union with Christ. And so he is repeating what he already highlighted in verse 4 and verse 5, that all that's Christ is ours in our union with Christ. Why is Paul elaborating on this? Because before he's going to turn the corner in verse 11 to what he wants you to do, 
He has to make sure you know what has already been done for you. That's the power of Christian living. What has Jesus already done for me that I, I'm connected to, I'm united to, that can never be separated? That's what he's drilling in in verses 8 to 10. I need to know, verse 9, what Christ did. And so then the principle goes, the more you know, the more you can grow, that the fruits of your sanctification are inextricably linked to the roots of your justification. That's what abiding in Christ in John 15, the vine and the branches illustration that Jesus uses is telling us. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You have no forgiveness of sin apart from me. You, know, have, you have no power to defeat sin apart from me. Just as a branch is dependent upon the main line of the tree, the vine, that goes down to the roots. And so the roots of our faith, Paul is digging deeper in 8 to 10 to tell it, you need to know Christ before he's going to start talking to you about what fruits you should look for. And so we, before we move to verse 11, the question you have to ask is, do I know him? Do I know what he did for sinners? Do I believe he did it for me? Because if you're not in Christ today, anything after verse 11 does not apply to you. And if I tried to make it apply to you, I would be encouraging your legalism to not be in Christ and have all of his righteousness applied to you, but now I'm going to start telling you how you should be righteous like him. So if you're not in Christ this morning, and that's even different than me asking you, do you believe in Jesus? Some of you do, but you're not in Christ. You know, because you're convinced he really did live at some point in history, and he really was a good teacher. And, and maybe in some twist of fate, he got up, you know, twi- crossed up with the wrong religious people of his time, and yeah, he was even put to death. You can believe it because it's in history. But I'm asking you, do you believe that you are in Christ? That's what Paul would ask you. Are you in Christ today? And is his spirit in you? And if you're not, you, as we just sang, see all that he offers you, all that he is, the son of God who came to die for sinners in the sinner's place, rose again. He is. But is he your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted in him by faith? Have you, as I talked to one gentleman this morning who just openly admitted he's not in Christ. And he said to me, it's because I don't believe all the way. That's how he said it. With whatever he's been coming hearing, he says, I know the difference. And it's, I, don't, I haven't believed all the way. <laughs> I said, that's an amazing thing for you to understand. Because you could go to a lot of churches that would be happy for you just going halfway. Like, no, nah, you know, just, just say this prayer with me right now. Just say it and you'll be in. Because if you confess with your mouth. He put up the own stop. And he knows he doesn't believe all the way into Christ. Into Christ and all that he has. And that's what you need today. Is to believe all of it and everything. Leaving no shred in your mind of your own righteousness that would make you pleasing to God. That's the good news of the gospel. It's believing all the way into Jesus. You don't need to know all those words I already used 
You'll learn them in time. Maybe. But if you know that believing into Jesus means you are connected to him, united to him, and will be with him now and forever, will you trust in Christ today? He offers himself. He offered himself on the cross. He offers himself in his resurrection life. And he offers himself in his reigning life as master and lord of all. What will you do with that? Do you believe into him? And all he's done and all he is. And if you do, then Paul has advice for now. How do we live the victorious life in Jesus? Verse 11, we consider ourselves. It's like Paul's been on the uh, chalkboard. Whiteboard, I guess, nowadays. Chalk's bad for our lungs or something. And he's been writing this great theology in Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, even into 6. And he's had his back turned to you because it's not been about you. And he's giving all these amazing truths about salvation. And then in verse 11 he says, even so. And he's got the marker pointing at you. Because what he means when he says even so is, this is for you now. He's looking at you. And he says, consider yourselves. What am I supposed to consider? What is he asking me to do here? Consider myself what? Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's actually the first command in this glorious epistle to the Romans. He wants you to reckon. That's what the word means. Consider yourselves. I reckon. What's it mean when you say, I reckon? It's different than saying, I imagine. It's possibility. That's not a reckoning. It's an accounting term in Paul's time. It's sliding numbers and figures and amounts of money, and it's moving it, and it's looking at facts in front of you. It's taking all the information in. And then you have to decide, do I see what's in front of me? Because it's clear. You got to do that. If you're going to be victorious in Christ, you've got to look at all of the facts and figures of what Paul just said in Romans. Now, what he just said in Romans is, I'm going to move all the things around for you. And to one side, here's you and your sin and your helplessness and hopelessness. That's what I reckon? Yeah, that's what I reckon. I reckon I'm a sinner, depraved. And then he says, now let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moves it over to his side. And he says, he pays it all. And breaks the penalty and the power and the permanence of sin, and what it requires, and you having to die for your own sin, he does it for you. And he says, that's what you need to reckon. If you're going to live the victorious Christian life, you've got to go back to the gospel and say, I am dead to sin, because I've reckoned, I've done the accounting work, I'm dead to sin, and I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't look past alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. That's your union with Christ. Why am I dead to sin? Because I'm in Christ Jesus and he died to sin, so I died to sin. Why am I alive to God? Not because I willed myself there, really wanted to know God. No, you're alive to God because you're in Christ Jesus. You can obey God because you're in Christ Jesus. All of it goes back to your union with Christ. But he is giving you something to do. He's saying now you need to reckon that to yourself. You need to credit that to your account about yourself. You need to think about yourself this way. That, that reckoning word appears in Genesis 15, 6. It is when you look as a response to something and declare what it now is. Genesis 15, 6 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that's in Hebrew. Genesis 15, 5. God took Abraham outside and said, Now look, Abraham, toward the heavens. Count the stars if you're able to count them. And God said to Abraham, So shall your descendants be. Abraham's doing a reckoning right there. He's counting things up. And he has no reason to believe that based on what he knows. He, he can believe that God says, You're going to have descendants more than those stars. But what he would have been hard for him is the doubt of like, I don't even have a kid yet. And I'm getting old. But faith overcame that. Verse 6. Abraham believed in the Lord. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. God saw the faith that was in Abraham there in that moment. He believed in the promise of God. God can reckon that to him. But now Paul is taking that and turning it around and saying. So do you believe what God says about you? Then reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you believe what, how about this, what Christ has already accounted for or reckoned to your account, Christian? Christ already did the hard reckoning, did he not? Taking all of your sin and dying on the cross in your place and living that perfect life of righteousness now credited to your account. If he did that reckoning work, now what he's saying to you, if you're going to be victorious in your Christian life and fight sin, you need to reckon all of that is to you. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It doesn't have power over you anymore. You don't live under the reign of sin and death. Back to 521, you live under the reign of grace and righteousness. Because otherwise it could just be easy to say, if he skips past a verse like verse 11, it could just be this like, um, yeah, I believe all that, which then can produce what the question in 6.1 produces, which is a doubt to whether sin really even matters anymore if grace is so great. I could say I believe it, but do I really have this conviction, this reckoning in my heart that all of that is true of Christ, is true of me? A little church history lesson. In the time of the Protestant Reformation, there were those in the Roman Catholic Church that did think this grace was just scandalous. It just lets people off the hook. You just have a bunch of these reformers running around saying, it's by grace through faith in Christ. No more works. Now, that was bad for their business. That's a whole other story. But come on, there's got to be some work involved. I've shared the gospel with my own Catholic relatives. And you know the differing point we have? It's not that I believe in Jesus and they don't believe in Jesus. I believe in the cross, they don't believe in the cross. I believe in the resurrection. No, we agree on all those points. They don't believe it's just by grace through faith. And they've told me that. 
Adam, you just could say you believe something. So as a response, the reformers tried to differentiate between a faith that's just based on what you say versus what you truly hold as a conviction and then it turns into something you do. The content of your belief, the conviction of your belief, and the carrying out, and that was where they came up with those words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. What is true faith comprised of? Notitia, the content of your faith, which is what Paul just described in verses 1 through 10. The content of it, the gospel. Yes, you have to believe in that. That's the content, Notitia. A census, though, was this other part that says you personally have reckoned it to yourself. You have a conviction of that belief. And for the reformers, often it turned into that conviction led to their own death. That's how much they believed it. It wasn't just like James 2, 17 to 20, faith without works is dead. And then the fiducia, it's visible, it's seen, it makes a difference in your life. That could have been an outline for today's message. Because really that's what Paul is moving through from this content to the conviction. And then we'll get to 12 to 14, the carrying out of what you say you believe. But the emphasis of this one verse is... Have you reckoned for yourself? Have you counted for yourself what Christ has done in defeating sin and now alive to God? Is that true of you as well? Have you reckoned with this truth? So it's maybe a practical way, because I know union with Christ. I've had this discussion with some friends already. Adam, is there any way to make union with Christ practical? What? How? You're talking about something out of this universe. There's nothing like it. Well, you know, like, you know, you know, can you describe? Maybe it's like Velcro or what? You can't. There's a lot of things that can be made practical in the Christian life. Trying to understand how we fallen sinners through faith can be united to the Son of God now and forever. If you got any ideas on the practicality of that, let me know. But really, the practical step is right in front of us in verse 11. Reckon it. Consider it. Think, like, not just think about it. Grow a conviction from it. So I wanted to try to make that practical. I was mowing my lawn yesterday, and that's a very practical thing. So I get practical thoughts mowing my lawn. So here's how I would encourage you today. If you are sincerely struggling with sin, wrestling with why don't I do what I want to do? Why do I have this battle within What can I do to make union with Christ? Adam, I believe it, but I want to really get it. I want to consider myself dead to sin, alive to God. So here would be some steps I'd give you to take today. One, today, memorize Romans 6, 11. I mean, this truth isn't going to help you if you really don't know it in your bones. And it helps when you memorize it. And it's just one verse. Even so, fingers pointing at me, fingers pointing at you from Paul. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Memorize that today. Commit it to memory. Sometime today, driving in the car, later on, around the table, throw it out there and try to help each other build it and know it for life. Another thing you can do right now, reckon with this truth by writing it down. You know the sin in your life, I don't. But I want you to start a sentence with this. Because I am alive in God in Christ, I don't. And you fill the rest in. I don't have to what? What's your sin struggle? 
This is for the believer. Because I am alive in God, in Jesus Christ, I don't have to stay angry at that brother. Grow bitter to that sister. You know who it is. I don't need a glass of wine to relax tonight. I don't need a six-pack. I don't need to overeat to feel satisfied. When I feel guilty, I don't need to go and then make myself throw up. I don't have to watch that show. I don't have to go get my phone when everybody falls asleep. I don't have to. That's the practical nature of this truth. You don't have to. Do you believe that? Why else would Paul, inspired by the Spirit, write it? If we really can't stop sinning, as in continuing to live in it. This isn't some sin that you just did 10 seconds ago, probably. I'm saying the sin that you know is the hardest thing for you to fight. Reckoning yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ is you being able to complete that sentence. And you've got to just look at it and take it for what God says it is. Because he says it about you in Christ. And then help yourself tonight by praying that truth. Something simple from this verse. God, when Christ died, I died to sin. And I'm alive to obey you because he rose and reigns. I do believe it helped my unbelief. And he can. Otherwise, all the songs we sing and the stuff we say about him, where does it really land? if we don't really believe it. And then, one other practical step. Find some songs that tell you that and sing them. They they seal to our hearts through music. Why we're so particular about what we sing is because we want the music, we want the, the, the content of those songs to really come back to us when we need it. More than the melody, we want the truth of it to hit us. And I was sitting there thinking on this, going, what, what song would I know by heart? And the end of the first stanza of Rock of Ages, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood, the wounds from which it flowed, be to me the double cure, saved from wrath and made pure. By, by knowing that song, I can sing this truth to my heart. Be to me the double cure. He's talking about what? Saved from wrath, the penalty of sin. And make me pure, the power of sin to make me sin. And the rock of ages cleft for me that I hide myself in. There's my union with Christ. In a song, what's yours? It's going to help you know this truth and Reckon it true to you. There's where union with Christ gets practical. And then, and only after all of that, verses 12 to 14, he he zooms further in, not just reckoning these truths about our union with Christ to be ours personally. Now he says, let's get personal about the sin in your life. 12 to 14. Let me give you some instruction. The first instruction in verse 12 comes from a therefore, which says, In light of all that I just taught you, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. 
Don't let sin reign. Well, if you're in Adam, if you're in sin, sin reigns. So all he's really telling you is if you're in Christ, sin doesn't reign over your life anymore, but it still shows up in the way you might be thinking about yourself. Don't let it reign. As in you, what you just said about yourself in verse 11, when you feel the temptation to sin, know that it doesn't reign over you anymore because you're in Christ and not in Adam. And when you start thinking that way, you can not obey its lusts. But not letting it reign is just recognizing and acknowledging the reality of what God did for you in Christ, that he already removed its reign, and you live under the reign of Adam. You're not under sin's reign. You're under verse 21 of chapter 5, the reign of grace. Obeying its lusts, that word for lust is a word for desire. It's, It's a neutral word in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used for very good desires. Paul uses it in Philippians 1. I have the desire to go and be with Christ. So it's not a bad, that's, it's neutral, that word. It can be a desire that what? When you use it for sin, you're letting sin reign as if it still does reign and it doesn't reign over you anymore. It doesn't have power you over anymore. So the first practical application of fighting sin where you start is saying, look, sin does not reign in my life anymore. Its power was broken through Christ. And then he gets a little more practical in verse 13. He kind of follows that up with, okay, if you now say you believe that and you don't want to obey the lusts of your body, then take an account of all your members, verse 13. Don't go on presenting the members of your body. That word members is body parts. Body parts for sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Instead of that, Your life is to be lived, all of you. Every body part of yours is lived to God as alive from the dead. And your members, your body parts as instruments of righteousness to God. There's the great divide of how we use our bodies, how we live and move and breathe and have our being. He says it right there in verse 13. There's a great divide. You're either going to use your body parts, eyes, ears, hands, feet, all of it. You're going to use it to sin or to God. So which is it? And if you're in Christ, you now have the ability to no longer use it for unrighteousness. A little note on this verse, that word instrument doesn't maybe do it for you because you're like, violin? Like what? When really in the New Testament, that word's used six times and it's used as weapons. The only time it gets translated instruments is here. And I think weapons is actually a more accurate portrait of it because Weapons gives this idea, it's a fight, it's a battle, and you're not to go on presenting my body parts to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, to do some damage for unrighteousness, because when we sin, we do damage. We damage ourselves, we damage others, and that's exactly what our enemy wants us to do. But he's saying, no, use your body as those alive from the dead and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. Use it for his kingdom. And so you get this picture, don't you now, of a a two-kingdom battle. The kingdom of Adam and sin and the kingdom of Christ and righteousness. And there's a war. And you know, again, those members, those body parts aren't the fault. They're not to blame. Every body part you have 
given by God, fearfully and wonderfully made. I never blame a body part. Oh, you know, I've got my, you know, if, if what? Your body's amazing. It's what you do with it. The eye amazes the scientists who study it. Because God made it. It's what you do with that eye. It's what you look at. It's an input. And what you look at then determines probably what you're going to do. What you fill your mind with comes through here or comes through here. And then what are the outputs? Your tongue, your hands, your feet. It all relates. And he's saying, don't, don't think of these things as to be used for anything other than in the positive. If you're alive from the dead and so are your body parts to be weapons for God's righteous cause. And why you can do that and believe you can succeed in verse 14 is because sin should not be master over you because you're not under it anymore. You're under grace. You're under the reign of grace. You can stop sinning. Doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect, but it's, it's the direction those weapons are pointed in. Christian life, sanctification, growing in Christ isn't about the perfection. We've been told that. It's the direction. What direction are your weapons pointed in? To be used for God and his righteous cause or to be used to serve yourself in sin? But it should not be master over you because you're not under that. The law, which is what produces our sinful disobedience, but you're under the grace of God in Christ. It makes you think about Romans 12, 1. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So do an account of your body parts. Think about that right now. How are you using them positively for the, for the cause of Christ, for righteous sake? And you can do it. And I think this is where we kind of move in our maturity as a Christian from just like, oh, you know, I'm just, my whole Christian life is just this idea of me trying to avoid sin, to not sin. But see, Paul doesn't seem to think that way. He's telling you, yeah, don't sin, but let me, let me give you the better path. Think of the positive. Think of the good you can do in verse 13. How is me using my mind and my eyes and ears and tongue and hands and feet for God's righteous cause? That's something to live for and get excited about. But you don't just kind of default into that. Because we're still in the flesh and we want to serve self. As if we still are sin's slave. And we'll talk about that next week. But for this week, just end on, when I think about my life and all that I am, not just, okay, I still struggle with sin, but where is it that that sin is manifesting itself? Where are the fruits coming? The bad fruits. And say, I got to start working at that. If it's with my tongue, why is it that I'm using my tongue to sin so much? I mean, James 3, and Todd preached on it a couple weeks ago. Um, I mean, if you just take the account of James 3, we do the most damage with our tongue. A, a world of fire, it says, happens as a result of us using our tongue for what? Unrighteous purposes. And it's hard to tame. So before you think this sermon just needs to be about be careful little eyes what you see and ears what you hear, our tongues full of wickedness if we don't say I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Help me Lord to use it for your glory today.
All right, I wanted to try to draw this all together in kind of one final picture, because it is hard to put it all together. I mean, in, in its separate parts, I'm like, okay, I got this part over here about knowing Christ, and I've got this part here about considering myself, and this part about fighting sin. In Adam last week, we talked about being in Adam, and then we talked about being in Christ, and I was thinking, is there kind of an image for like the reign of something and in, in where we were and now where we are. Because Colossians says we've been transferred, what? From the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Christ reigns. So I was thinking about my neighborhood. And like a lot of the neighborhoods in Hickory, they, they border other neighborhoods. And so mine, I don't know, the name mine, I think it's Sunset Hill or something. And it borders, uh, I will call it Shadow Hill. I don't think that's the name, but there it is. Maybe there's a street in between. And so when I was in Adam, and one of the great things about my parents giving me that name, like I get in Adam, I'll die. Like, because that helps me to know, like my sin is personal. It's not impersonal. It's not outside of me. It's in Adam. So I was in Adam, not in Christ, unbelieving. And so I'll call that the neighborhood of Adamsville. In Adam, in sin, and I had my house built, and it was a house of sin, and every room was for sin, because that's what Romans 6.13 says. My body of sin wanted to just use all the parts of my house for sin. The kitchen, gluttony, eat as much as I want, no regard for any self-control. And maybe if I did try to clean that act up, it would just be to what? Perform, impress people, hey, you look good. So then the kitchen leads to the workout room, right? And my pride is on the altar there. And it's the one I'm worshiping. That was the house of sin Adam lived in. Under the reign of Adam, under the reign of sin. You with me so far? Adamsville. And then I am born again. And I'm in a new neighborhood. And yeah, this might be the road in between. But my house is now on this side. And we'll call it Christsburg. Some of you know why I named it that. A holy place. Adamsville, Christburg, and in Christburg, Christ reigns. And again, I didn't pick up the house and say, I just need to remodel it and move it over there. No, I get a new one over here, new creation, new house. And the rooms in that house now are to be used for righteousness sake. And so the kitchen, I still know what it could be like to go into that kitchen and serve self, but now from within, I actually go, I want to go into that kitchen and eat healthy and be right because I want my body to be used for God. And yes, I'm going to still go work out. That didn't change. But it's not just to serve self, to be applauded for being in shape. And what I'm going to fill my mind with in the library isn't going to be to try to impress people with what I read. It's because I want to know more of who God is and the wonderful world he created. So here's my house over here in Christburg. Here's the old place in Adamsville. Now here's the thing. Under either of those reigns, houses all around you. When you're living over here, every house is a house of sin. Now you're like, yeah, if you're in my neighborhood, you know that. Every house, sin lives there. Sin walks over to your house in the old place, invites you over, and you don't want to resist. You just say, yeah, I'll come over. Sin at your house, let's go. Hey, come into my house and sin. They knock at your door, come on in, sin. That's how you lived in sin. And then in Christ, you're in this new place. Now here's the thing. We're not out of this world yet, so sin still can walk over, knock on your door. Hey, man, aren't we still homies? Come on over. Like, what? weren't we friends? And that's what sin's constantly doing to the new person in Christ. It can walk back into your yard. 
It can knock on your door. It can mess with the door. You know what it can't do? It can't force itself in anymore. That's the power you have now because you're in Christ. Because Christ owns the house and Christ put the door in and Christ reigns in the neighborhood and you pay your taxes in Christburg, not over in at. Do you get it? Everything is his now. You actually don't have to respond to sin's invitations. Whether by mail or shouting across the lawns or walking, you don't have to let it in. You actually can say no. And that's the difference of being in Christ, in union with Christ, and being in Adam. Whereas before, couldn't resist it. And even if you did, you did it to make yourself look good. Not anymore. It's because Christ owns this home and Christ owns every room. And I don't have to let sin into any of it. I'm new in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Because it gives hope that we don't have to go on sinning. And not as if we're trying to promote some idea of will we be this sinless, perfect person. That'll be one day in heaven with you. But we know we don't have to live under sin's reign because its power has been broken, its penalty's been removed, and that we can offer our bodies, our minds, our hands and feet and eyes and ears. We're a living sacrifice. And we can use those, these members as gifts to you because you gave them to us and we can turn around and use them for your glory. They can be weapons of righteousness for your gospel cause. And that's our heartbeat today. So as we sing this morning on our way out, help us to think that way about ourselves anew today in Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.